toss endless online searching to the curb. Let us edit out the noise and bring you medicine without misinformation. Welcome to the MedEdit Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Jessica Gray. And me, Dr. Carrie Sorrell. Together, we will provide real, evidence-based medical information that will empower your health decisions, answer your questions, even the cringeworthy ones, and help you navigate the overload of information related to health and wellness. Let's sprinkle a little laughter and a whole lot of knowledge into your day. Hey, Carrie, how are you doing today? I am good, Jess. How are you? I'm great. So happy to be here again. Absolutely. It's Friday and happy to be back on the radio. Love it. Today, we are talking about two very different topics. First, we are discussing lupus, a disease seen in about 0.5% of the population, Definitely varies by region. You know, there's the United Arab Emirates, Barbados, Brazil, having some of the highest lupus prevalence. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what lupus is, what it is not, and some very important pearls on management with our favorite rheumatologist, the TikTok famous (laughs) Dr. Taylor Warmoth. After that, we will completely switch gears to our first awkward moment segment. You know, those topics you've been too embarrassed to ask your doctor? Well, we're going to cover them. Topics in our Awkward Moments segments are submitted by listeners anonymously. And in today's segment, we have a real awkward one. We are talking about anal itching. Yes, you heard me right. (laughs) So stay tuned. All right, perfect. So this is let's get these things going. So, you know, I see patients all the time who come in with vague symptoms of fatigue, joint pain, and they're always concerned they have an autoimmune disease. And then there's some influencer online who has just convinced them that they have lupus. So we're always talking about lupus. And I'm always having that discussion in clinic, it seems like these days, more and more. So here we are with board certified and TikTok famous Dr. Taylor Warmoth, who is going to help us edit out the noise and give us the facts when it comes to whether you might have an autoimmune disease and when to see your doctor. Welcome to the MedEdit podcast, Taylor. It's nice to be here. It's nice to see both of you and and have this opportunity to share what information I can that people want to hear. And famous is uh, a very, you know, oh. very kind stretch of you. But oh, <laughs> you, you are famous well, <laughs> on TikTok. You know, anybody can be famous, right? Well, right. Yeah. But you are famous. I would. Thank I would you. agree. Absolutely. <laughs> So now on a personal note, Taylor, you and I have been friends for many years. Like we have known each other since going back to college days. I think we we held each other's hair back at points in our life. Yes. Yes. You're my organic chemistry class. Like it's been a while. We've done. I had to cry to get an A in that class, but it worked. (laughs) We've done all of these big life events together. You know, we went through medical school and residency, and I know we have stories on each other that we won't we won't share them all. You know, oh, okay. on the podcast, but maybe yeah. for for later over a glass of wine, maybe some mm-hmm. reels or you know social media. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> but I have always been fascinated by the field you chose to go into rheumatology. Mm-hmm. Can you start off explaining to our, us and our listeners what is rheumatology exactly? Man, I get this question a lot, whether it's from, you know, people like run into, you know, the grocery store, what are you doing nowadays to my own relatives? What, what is rheumatology? And it has nothing to do with interior design. I am not evaluating rooms, although that sounds much more fun than the Very job fun. that I do some days. Um, but rheumatology really is the study of autoimmune disease, particularly focusing on the joints. So that's another thing I kind of have to fight against. I tend to treat things like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, all of those kinds of diseases. But I don't treat things, this is where it gets confusing for people, like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disease, but it's attacking the thyroid. And trust me, you don't want me doing 
doing anything with your hormones. Right. I don't know what I'm doing with my own hormones, much less other people's. Um, don't worry, we have an episode for that. So. Oh, good. I'll, I'll tune in. I'm going to need it. Um, so that's really rheumatology is, is treating disease that is autoimmune in nature that affects typically the joints, or at least starts there or involves the joints in some way. That makes sense for sure. Awesome. Um, well, on the topic of lupus, Taylor, what is it and why is it so commonly talked about when it seems mm. relatively rare globally? So, yes, lupus is is a very rare disease. It affects anywhere from maybe 0.5 to 1% of the nation. Well, of, of the world, really. Um, definitely higher in populations with a higher African-American or Hispanic descent. But lupus can have very vague symptoms. And sometimes I think when people are desperate for answers, they may go to a source like Google and type in fatigue and joint pain. And nine times out of 10, lupus is going to pop up on that first page of Google. And, and that's kind of what I do have to fight against a lot. That's part of the reason I um, started my TikTok account was for lupus misinformation in particular. You know, patients are, they're just desperate and looking for some kind of answer. And lupus can seem convincing because we can kind of mold it to fit different pictures for everyone. What lupus truly is, though, is an autoimmune disease that affects multiple organs in the average body system. We're talking heart, lungs, skin, kidneys, bones and joints, muscles, almost every organ in the body can be affected by lupus. And because it can look so different in different people, mm -hmm. it's become very muddy what is and what is not lupus. Another thing that I think muddies the picture is the testing for lupus. There's a blood test very commonly heard of called the ANA or the mm -hmm. anti-nuclear antibody test. And man, that test runs positive in about 20%, if not 40% of the population. Okay, it so becomes, what you're saying is, sorry to interrupt there. So no, you're of course. Somebody has a positive ANA. It does not that mean they, they have, have lupus, lupus, right? Mm -mm. And and it, it becomes very stressful because a lot of times people will go into their doctor and say, oh, I'm fatigued, or maybe I have a rash. And, and they just run this panel and the test comes back positive. They get a phone call from somebody at the office that says, hey, your ANA was positive. So we're sending you to a specialist. Man, I, I book out a year to get new patients in. Right. And so the first thing you're going to do, if you don't have a friend who knows what that is, is you're going to get online. And it can be very terrifying to read, well, ANA is associated with lupus, but it's also associated with things like mono. If you ever had Epstein-Barr virus, food poisoning, pneumonias, if you ever had a skin cancer. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things out there that cause a positive ANA to the point that by your 70th birthday, you have a 70% chance of having a positive ANA. So you can count the candles and count your chances in the same wow. moment. That's good to know. So if who should be getting their ANA checked? People with the quote unquote right symptoms. So beyond fatigue and joint pain, you're going to see what we call the butterfly rash. Now that butterfly rash is pretty common too. Um, then we'll see people who maybe start to have unusual symptoms related to kidney disease. So shortness of breath or chest pain, maybe swelling of the extremities. And this is, you know, awkward talk, foamy urine or blood in your urine. That's not mm. normal. And, and so that can be a big sign. Um, patients can deal with patchy hair loss or ulcers or sores in their mouth um, or their nose, patients who have been getting blood clots or having recurrent miscarriages, those are the people that really should be tested. Um, 
Part of rheumatology in general, by the way, is that women are far more likely to have autoimmune disease than men. That's about my understanding of estrogen. It just kind of makes <laughs> us more prone to autoimmune disease than men in general. So additionally, we need to keep women in mind with these diseases a lot more, which is hard. I feel like women tend to have their symptoms kind of brushed off more than, than a male patient. So right. it's something that you need to advocate for yourself for as well. On that topic of the rash, because I do have a lot of patients come in when they do their research online, mm -hmm. that is one that they come, you know, they say, okay, I know fatigue is nonspecific. I know joint pain is nonspecific, but like but this rash, can you explain a little bit more? Because I mean, sometimes I've had to come in and it looks like rosacea on their face. Mm -hmm. there's, there's, I know there's some characteristics that differentiate the rash on the face from other rashes, you know, what, what most specifically fits with lupus? Ooh, we're getting, we're getting deep into the board studies today. Okay. <laughs> so I love it. I do. This is why you're our favorite rheumatologist. Yes. Thank you. Well, I'm the only one that you guys know, but hey, thank you hey, so much. Hey. Um, <laughs> so what makes a lupus rash different than rosacea or any kind of other adult acne or something else that can cause drug allergies that can cause that rash? The lupus rash in particular, what makes it a butterfly is if you imagine the center line of a butterfly and the wings that come out either side, the lupus rash sits on top of the cheeks and over the bridge of the nose. It does not cross over our smile lines onto mm. above our lip. The lupus rash doesn't do that. So if it does, we need to think more things like rosacea, allergy, dry skin in general, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. So that little smile line we get after, you know, a, a day at, you know, someone's wedding, that line is where the rash should not cross over on patients with lupus. Love it. Thank you for yeah. clarifying. I think that helps a lot when patients are looking at it online and then they look at mm -hmm. themselves in the mirror like, well, I might see a rash. Right. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'll have to make sure to send my selfies when I think I have a rash to you instead of my dermatologist. <laughs> oh, no, right? please send them to the dermatologist. <laughs> I know one rash and one rash alone and it's lupus. Well, thank you so much, Taylor, for clarifying that. It's very helpful. And so if you do have a patient that's diagnosed with lupus, obviously they're going to talk to their doctor about medical treatments, about mm -hmm. medical management. But what are some things that they could do that are not necessarily medication that could help control symptoms. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, the one medicine that I'll talk about is as a drug called hydroxychloroquine uh, that made the news a couple of years ago, also known as Plaquenil because we thought it fixed COVID. And it is used in almost all patients with lupus for a couple of reasons. Number one, studies have shown it extends your lifespan. So even if you don't feel that symptomatic, even if you're like, you know, I definitely don't feel like I've had a lupus flare in a year, year and a half, I'm going to try and keep you on that medicine. It's the only medicine that I'll really still push on people because I do like to try and avoid medications when we can. Mm -hmm. You know, meds, we talk about this a lot in medicine. You ladies know this all the time, the risk to benefit ratio. How much is this medicine going to help you versus is it going to put you at risk for side effects, interactions with other medications, that kind of thing. So I think a lot of patients that come into my clinic ask about diet. Yeah. They love to talk about anti-inflammatory foods and, you know, is there anything I could be eating that might be making this worse, that kind of thing. And I am all for trying to find a good diet for someone to help with their inflammation, help with their fatigue, help with their joint pain, that kind of thing. What we see 
is the Mediterranean diet seems to do very well. That is going to be foods like seafood, chicken and turkey, fruits and vegetables, beans, grains, and quinoa. We're cutting out a lot of red meats. And y'all, I'm a West Texas girl. That is hard. And I know it. I (laughs) I tell my patients, the more likely I am to, or the more I talk about a heart healthy diet with my patients, the more likely I am to stop and grab a hamburger on the way from work. I mean, (laughs) I've said the word red meat a thousand times and I just want that hamburger. Um, But cutting out red meats, cutting out processed sugars in particular seems to do very well. And then cooking oils. Um, The only oil that I have heard from my dietitian friends that is truly anti-inflammatory is olive oil. Avocado oil seems to do pretty well as um, in addition, but any kind of oil that, you know, peanut oil, that Chick-fil-A sandwich, or um, we used a lot of canola and vegetable oil growing up. Those oils are actually pro-inflammatory. So trying to eat a more Mediterranean-based diet seems to do very well. Um, On top of that, exercise, you know, low impact movement does very well. I tell people the best thing you can do is get into a body of water, go swim in a pool, go sit in a hot tub and do, you know, stretches in a hot tub if that's all you can do. Um, And then avoiding tobacco. We have so many studies showing that cigarettes, vaping, any kind of tobacco or nicotine-based product seems to make lupus much, much worse. So avoiding those products in general seems to help people out a lot. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems to be the same things that help with most of our body systems, right. our heart, our colon. I mean, we surprise. I feel like <laughs> surprise. It's like we're it's like we're consistent. We know what we're talking about. But you know, it's it's true that I feel like I tell people the same thing mm-hmm. for completely different diseases. So I find Absolutely. that absolutely interesting how consistent we are. I mean, it means the data is consistent as well. One yeah. of the things I think is nice though is that when you do the research on some of these auto, you know, autoimmune inflammatory diets they get so restricted yes. for patients. Mm. They put all of these things in there and then the patient ends up not getting the nutrients they need or they're causing unnecessary anxiety about what they're eating. And so what Taylor's telling us is that we could be a lot more, um, a little more carefree about it, but just yes. a Mediterranean diet is not something that's super restrictive. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. Really, it's not even as restrictive as like a vegetarian diet is. It's just lower in some areas and focusing on some higher in some mm-hmm. other areas. So right. and that's, that's what I tell my patients all the time. That's what I love about the Mediterranean diet. You're not counting calories. You're not weighing your food before you put it on your plate. You're just making some different choices and, and doing things in moderation. Um, Now, don't get me wrong, there are certain patients who obviously need to count calories or weigh foods, but that's what I like is is living a little less restricted. You're not afraid to go to a restaurant with friends. You can, there's something on every menu that's going to be a good salmon or a good chicken-based plate. Um, The other thing, that autoimmune protocol diet that I keep hearing patients come in, exactly like you said, Jessica, I think people get so afraid to eat certain foods. It introduces a lot of what we call food fear, meaning Mm -hmm. there's anxiety around food and that's not a healthy relationship to have with food. Yeah. And it's not maintainable. That's yeah. the other thing that I tell people is you can only do that for a very short period of mm-hmm. time before you just you're over it. And then usually you start back worse than you were beforehand. Right. Yeah. Wonderful. Again, fantastic information, Taylor. Um, what are some kind of final things maybe that you wish patients who have concerns about lupus or autoimmune diseases knew? 
what do I wish they knew? Oh, you know, one thing I think patients have a lot of concern about is heritability. You know, they come in and they're very concerned because maybe their mother had lupus or they have it and they're concerned about their child getting it. And so that's one thing. Lupus inheritance is actually quite low. Um, The biggest time we're concerned about it is if an identical sibling, twin sibling has lupus. That puts you around a 12 to 25% chance of getting lupus. Um, But a parent, maybe 4%, a sibling, maybe 5 to 9%. So don't be, don't fear for your children. Don't fear having children because you have lupus. Patients with lupus can have normal pregnancies. That is a huge concern of patients that come in. Um, but you need to involve your doctor. You need to let them know, Hey, you know, we're planning on trying next year because we right. want to number one, make sure you're not on medication that's going to hurt a pregnancy. And number two, make sure your lupus is as well controlled as it can be. But pregnancy is possible and it can be healthy in a patient with lupus as long as we're doing the right things for them. Life with lupus, it's it's still livable. It's still lovable. If you can get on the right medications, find the right lifestyle that works for you with lupus, you can still have a full-time job. You can still have a family. You can still enjoy your holidays, your vacations. Um, but you've got to do certain things to maintain your lifestyle and to keep your disease in you know, remission, if not as close to remission as possible. We can get lupus into remission. We can keep lupus in remission. And that's something that's very reassuring, I think, for patients to hear at the time of diagnosis. You know, I've, I've held hands and said, it sucks right now, but I promise you in a year or a year and a half or six months, whatever, your life is not going to look like this. Patients actually often, you know, wait. We tend to brush symptoms under the rug and say, Oh, it's just a mild pain. And so by the time patients get to me, their lupus is usually pretty advanced. And so I have to, you know, remind people we can get back to where you were. I just think it's, it's so important to remember that, yeah, you can love life with lupus. And, and there are actually a few TikTok people out there that I really do like, um, that talk about their life with lupus and, you know, Hey, I'm taking my Ben Lista today. And they show themselves, giving themselves a quick shot and then they move right on. Love that. Love to hear that. Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for all of this fascinating and helpful information. Of course, course, we'll include information in the show notes for our listeners about resources for people diagnosed or managing lupus, as well as Dr. Taylor Warmus social media info so you can follow her for more information. I promise I'll update soon. It's been a while. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Taylor, we are keeping you around for this next part, okay? Up oh, next, goody. Tackling our first awkward moment segment. And boy, is it awkward. Submitted to us by a listener. We just had to address this question. What do I do about anal itching? Thank goodness we have our own very board, very own board certified gastroenterologist, Dr. Carrie Sorrell, to address this today. As a reminder, you as a listener can submit questions for the awkward moment segment throughout our social media pages. Now, Carrie, this is your bread and butter, right? That's right. You tackle all things booties and bums in your practice. Let's help our listener out with this concern. All right. Well, I know Taylor's really excited to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I'm thinking of the questions I'm going to submit later on just to watch you two have to discuss them. (laughs) (laughs) So anal itching, it affects about one to 5% of the population. Usually the most common demographic is going to be men, so middle-aged men, usually between age 40 and 60, although it can affect anybody depending on the cause. That's what I would see most commonly in my practice. The very frustrating thing about anal itching is 
there's up to roughly 100 causes of anal itching, which makes the job of diagnosing what's causing it very difficult. And about a third of the time, we don't find a specific cause. So we talk about symptom management, but there may not be a specific thing we find causing that itching. About two thirds of the time there is. Um, Some common things that we see are hemorrhoids. So that's a very common cause of anal itching. And a lot of times you can have associated symptoms like bleeding, um, you know, pain with sitting as well, or feeling like a fullness in your rectum. That's another common symptom we see with hemorrhoids. Anal fissures or a tear in, in your anus is another cause of anal itching. And usually we kind of describe that as our ask patients is it feels almost like you're passing shards of glass Ooh. when you have a bound. I know it sounds wonderful, right? And so I always ask people, you know, like, do you have that much discomfort with the bowel movement and anal itching that could indicate that a fissure is a cause of your of your itching? The um, other causes can be skin irritation or dermatitis, which is a medical term for it. And that can be due to a wide range of things from certain detergents that you're using, creams, you know, like your your lotions that you put on after you shower, the soaps that you use, and also things that we eat, which a lot of people don't think about. The the anus, the skin around that is is a very sensitive area of skin. And things like coffee, peanuts, milk, they can all affect rectal, rectal tone, which can cause a small amount of leaking. And stool is very irritating to the rectum. So if it sits there for any kind of period of time, then the skin gets inflamed and you start itching. Also, you can have certain foods that cause whole body inflammation. So histamine, we all we all know kind of histamine, which is mm-hmm. an inflammatory marker, and it can cause a histamine reaction so that you can get itching from, from that as well. And then, of course, the, not that we see this commonly, everyone assumes that their anal itching is due to a parasite. Really, <laughs> in the U.S. and especially in developed parts of the U.S., it's not as common as people think it is. I mean, everyone would always come and be like, no, no, I think I have a parasite. That's probably the cause. And, and it can be sometimes, but it's not the most common reason for sure. But one of those parasites could be pinworms. So that could be something as well, especially in children. And um, if you're outside of that men, you know, age 40 to 60 group, you're looking more at kids. Um, they can also, they, I know this sounds really gross, but they can come out and they like hatch eggs and oh that can come. Oh. What I remember from med school is that's associated with a certain time of day. Is that correct? They nighttime. come out nighttime. nighttime. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So nighttime uh, itching, especially in kids, but you know, if you're a parent and you're around kids, you know, that can apply to you too. Cause we catch everything our kids have. And I've had this happen in my clinic before, not okay. to me, but I've had it happen yeah. in my I thought you were getting really personal with this. <laughs> Real personal. Real <laughs> I definitely had a parrot come in and she wasn't wrong, unfortunately. Yeah. But pinworms you can treat over the counter. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And main thing I always tell people too is to make sure, you know, if it is pinworms, just kind of aside, you do the treatment. You also need to wash everything in hot water. So like your sheets, your towels, all of the things because you want to kill everything off So because you can get reinfected. Mm. That's what I always like to remind people. And unfortunately, it's one of those like fecal oral things too. good hand washing. All of that is important. But um, because most of it does occur at night when you're sleeping in your sheets, that's the main thing you really have to be careful about and wash thoroughly um, to prevent reinfection. And but that's just one cause. And like I said, not the most common cause that we see Mm -hmm. Um, in Texas. One of the things we have to remember is sweat, right? So sweat, heat, all of those things trap moisture around our rectum. It's a sweaty area. And uh, I won't use the the slang term that we use for that here in Texas, but it is a high high sweat area. And all that moisture, of course, can cause some um, inflammation and irritation and thus itching as well. And the reason it's important, even though it's awkward, the reason it's really important to talk to your doctor about is there are some systemic diseases that can cause anal itching as a side effect. And example, thyroid disease 
Oh, interesting. Is another one of that. And then psoriasis as well. And obviously those are treated with some bigger gun, you know, medications. Also things like anxiety, stress, those can as well. But that's why it's really, even though it is awkward, important to say something because you may need a, you may need a big gun medication because this could be a symptom of a bigger problem. Mm. Um, And also in general, a few things that you can try at home, right? Because I said a lot of these times we don't find a specific cause or it is due to kind of a local irritation. So the so things you can do at home are, first of all, you want to make sure that you're using an unscented cleanser, right? So anything that's got like dyes, perfumes, all those things, you can, even if you've been using them a long time, you can develop kind of an allergy to them as well. So you want to use unscented detergents, unscented soaps, unscented lotions for those areas. Do you um, have any that you recommend in particular? Are we uh, allowed to like talk about brands? Absolutely. Balanol is a great cleanser for the anal area. A barrier cream with zinc oxide, such as Desitin or Boudreaux's butt paste, works well also for itching or irritation in the anal area. The one thing you really want to be careful with, though, that I do see a lot of patients come in that they have tried is like alcohol-based products. So be really careful, like rubbing alcohol, those type of things, hydrogen peroxide, you really should not be using that area until you have seen a physician because it can actually cause a lot of skin breakdown. Steroids is another one. Topical steroids seem to be something that people have tried a ton. And in those sensitive areas, it can cause skin thinning and skin breakdown, which can cause a bigger problem like a secondary bacterial infection or fungal infection. So those are things you don't really want to try over the counter unless you have seen a healthcare provider and ask them about your symptoms because it can make your problem even worse. Um, any unscented kind of soap or any of that is is fine. You know, just in general, you want to avoid dyes, perfumes, um, all, you know, all free, tide free, those type of things for washing, you know, towels, things that you're going to touch your bottom with. There was an allergist that I worked with at Tech that loved the all free. That's what he recommended all the time. I do too. I mean, I use it. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I always I have I have very sensitive skin at baseline. This is you know mm-hmm. kind of aside from anal itching, but <laughs> all for very sensitive skin. All your skin, not all just skin. not and just I, your bum. I've used it my whole life, and I can't do any perfumes, dyes, any of that. And it's it's always worked really well for me. So love love the all free or tide free. Like I said, whatever your preference <laughs> is. Balanol is a great cleanser for the anal area as well. Um, and so I usually recommend that to my patients also that you can kind of use outside of bathing time. So actually like while you're sitting, you know, um, on the toilet or something, you can also use it then to kind of gently cleanse that area. Cause again, if it's due to leaking or a topical irritation, you want to keep it nice and clean and dry, right? Cause we don't want moisture we don't want irritation and we don't want anything else kind of touching that area. Since we're talking about the bums and those yeah. things, what about those uh, wipes? I just learned yes. for my son because he's two and we just, you know, went yes. through all the potty training stuff. And I'm like, hey, maybe that'd be nice on his little booty now. Yeah, that I wipes, booties all the time. wipes for everyone, in my opinion. Like, I love wipes. I, and then I always tell people that's the other thing. Aggressive wiping can cause a lot of skin irritation in that area. <laughs> so I think everybody should be using wipes on their bums. So good to know. Yes, absolutely. Again, just no. make sure it's unscented. Okay. One other thing, and I'm inserting myself, but now I have an awkward question for awkward you're, you're, talk. You're engaged. You're, you're not- I am. I have locked in. I am way more interested in this question than I thought I would be. Um, you know, I, I hear a lot about, you know, you've mentioned hemorrhoids can cause itching and, and I hear a lot about don't spend too much time on the toilet. Like don't do what my husband does and take your phone in there and, and watch YouTube for an hour. This is not leisure hour. Like you have a job to do, move on. Cause that can lead to worsening hemorrhoids or, or yeah, two so, hemorrhoids. Is that correct? Right. So if you think about, especially how, and well, we can have a whole episode on this alone, but if you think about how toilets are designed, right. Mm-hmm. With the center being open, you sit there, all the pressure goes to the center of that toilet opening, which is your butthole. 
Okay. So if you've got hemorrhoids, which are basically vessels that can enlarge with blood. And just like when you get varicose veins on your legs, you can get, you mean, basically you're enlarging veins in your rectal area because you're spending too much time putting pressure in that area. So, Mm -hmm. you know, long car rides, sitting on the toilet for too long. Basically, you don't have enough support for the middle part of your, of your bottom and they get enlarged. So absolutely, you don't want to sit on a toilet where you have no support in that area for 30 minutes and then expect that over time of doing that, that you're not going to have an issue. So I usually tell people if you can try to limit it to like six to eight minutes, that's pretty much all you need. And if you haven't, if you haven't gone by then, get up. Yeah. (laughs) It's like if you haven't fallen asleep after 15 minutes, get out of bed. If your legs are tingling, it's time to get up (laughs) off the toilet. Okay. Probably before the legs go to sleep for sure. Um, We don't want you to fall. And also it means you could be aggravating your hemorrhoids and then your anal itching. And then while you're there, use wipes. And the other thing we don't use these quite as much in the U.S., although they seem to be coming a lot more in favor, is bidets. Mm-hmm. So bidets are actually really good for cleansing in that area. Um, I said they're they're not as popular in the United States as they are maybe in Europe or Asia. Even though I have had a lot of people who who I've had them installed after the fact, and it works really well for that area. Getting just really clean without a lot of aggressive wiping or a lot of aggressive cleansing is another great option if you're able to. Okay. Thank you so much, Carrie. This has been an absolute awkwardly fascinating blast. <laughs> Very informative. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody you know is going to have this question. Now you're going to be so well prepared to answer. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. And I can't wait for the other questions we're going to get that's, you know, spur off of this from our listeners. Um, just absolutely awkwardly fascinating. Nothing is off the topic on the meta. Nope. For that's sure. right. Um, so again, this episode has been a blast. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to our first guest, Dr. Taylor Wormuth, for being here. Please it was an honor. Anytime. We love having you. Um, as we've learned, lupus gets blamed for a lot. So make sure you get all the correct information about what it is and what importantly, what it is not. Prepare your questions for your next doctor's appointment. Yes, make a list. I love when patients bring in their list. Not when it's three pages long, mind you, but a reasonable list. If but- you get home and you're like, oh dang it, I forgot to ask, make, write them down. Absolutely. Great advice. And remember, it might be awkward to talk about, but it's important. Learn about the topics like anal itching that you are too embarrassed to discuss with your doctor on the awkward moment segments. And remember, don't be embarrassed to ask those questions. That's what we're here for. Come follow us to learn the facts about your health. Like this episode, subscribe, turn on notifications for new episodes, and tell your friends and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the MedEdit Podcast. Please click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information about this episode and to learn how you can reach Dr. Carrie Sorrell and Dr. Jessica Gray, please visit today's show notes. And don't forget, click that follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information and content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you need medical advice or help, contact your personal physician. The views and opinions of the guests do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Dr. Jessica Gray and Dr. Carrie Sorrell. This podcast should not be considered as an alternative for medical advice, diagnosis, or confirmation of an illness or disease. Please seek assistance from your personal health practitioner.